0: All right, turn with me to uh, do this, turn with me to John chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 1. So John 17 and Genesis chapter 1, and I want to continue to talk to us about who we are as the church, and we've been in a series basically called Come Home, Family on Mission. We've been learning what it means to be a family, the family of God, on mission with Jesus, and uh, we're really learning to be a healthy family, walking in unity, and so uh, want to talk about that today. And if anyone's on Facebook, if you don't go, if you're not on our, if you haven't liked our Facebook page, just go ahead, go to our Facebook, like it. If you think Facebook is a part of a worldwide conspiracy, that's cool. Don't click on it then. Uh, That's up to you. That's up to you. If you don't like it, don't do it. But if you like like us, and I asked a question on Facebook, uh, what does God, marriage, and the church have in common? Well, Let's talk about that today, all right? Let's see if we can answer that question. So we're going to kind of talk about all three of those today, God, marriage, and the church. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father right before he goes to the cross, and it's one of the most important and powerful prayers in all the scriptures, and it's Jesus asking the Father for what he desires. It's, this is Jesus' dream for his church, for his bride. This is what he longs for, to be and, uh, and so we really get to see an insight into what Jesus wants here. And so you'll look here in John 17, starting in verse 20. He's praying. <clears throat> he started by praying for his, the, the main 12 disciples. And now he's praying for all believers. He says this in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that will be us. Verse 21. That they all may be one... As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is Jesus' dream. This is his prayer, and this is what he envisions for his church, that the church would be one. And, but notice two times he mentions that uh, uh, he, he, he relates the oneness to the world. Two times he mentions the world, doesn't he? And both times they're a purpose statement. He says that the church would be one, that we, that the people who believe would be one. And he says that, in verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he says it again, and that the world may know that you have sent me. And so both times he's praying that the church would be one in such a way that the world would look to the church and say, they really, they're the real deal. And that the church being one, walking in unity, would bring glory to God in such a way that people would say, yeah, Jesus really is the Savior. Jesus really is the Messiah. That the, the, did you see what he says? The world. The world. So you can't have a great revival. You can't have a global revival where everyone in the nations comes to the Lord without having the church rise up and be the church that God has called us to be. This is what it means to be a family on mission. A family on mission. Oneness that causes the world to come home to God. Amen? This is what the Lord wants. This is Jesus' prayer. And you notice the kind of oneness he's talking about here. Do you see this? He goes, he says that they would be one, verse 21, that they would be one as you, Father, are are in me and I in you. So he likens the kind of oneness or unity that he's praying for. He's saying, he's praying that it would be just like the way the Father and the Son are one. Right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God. We're not, we don't worship many gods. Amen? We worship one God, one God, and yet three distinct persons. Remember that time when Jesus was being baptized in water and he's in the water He's the son of God, he's in human flesh, he's in the water, he was baptized, he comes out of the water, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus like a dove, right? At the same time, Father speaks from heaven, this is my son, and whom I am well pleased, right? The son's in the water, the Holy Spirit's come upon him, and the son is speaking to him. Three distinct persons, yet one God, one God. Isn't it interesting, right? God is one, and yet he's in relationship with himself. That tells us something about oneness, doesn't it? It tells us something about unity. Do you realize that, right? God has always, for all eternity, been in relationship with himself. God is love. God loves himself. God is in relationship with himself. There is unity in God. That's crazy, isn't it? You can't explain the Trinity through math and science. You, well, maybe a little bit. I shouldn't say that. What I mean is we try to use metaphors like, you know, water and eggs and apple pie and stuff like that. If you've never heard those metaphors, don't worry about it. But Jesus never tried to explain the Trinity through mathematical calculations. He always explained it in what? Relationship. Do you know there's actually authority and submission, honor and love in the Trinity? There's actually joy in the Trinity. Proverbs chapter 8 says that God is rejoicing in the Son. And the son is rejoicing in the father and, and Jesus is praying, Father, that the church would be one like we are one Like we are one He's not praying, oh Lord, I pray they just get along You know, oh Lord, I just pray they wouldn't kill each other You know, he's saying, Lord, that they would be like us Like they would be like us That they would be one like we are one And of course it can only happen in him Do you notice that when Jesus actually prays? That they also, in verse 21, that they also may be one in us. In us. The unity and the oneness can only happen in Christ. But what have we been learning these last couple weeks? You guys remember that. We've been learning about the church. That number one, the church is God's redemptive plan on the earth. Just like sin brought brokenness to our relationship with God, so the cross has redeemed our relationship with God. Amen? But just like the uh, sin brought destruction to our relationships with one another, Sin didn't just destroy our relationship with God, it destroyed our relationship with one another. So, the cross has made us one. The church is the redemptive plan of God. Because whatever God wants to do on the earth, he's beginning it in the church. By reconciling us to himself through the cross. But he also, we learned this last week, that he's reconciling each other. He's reconciling us to one another through the cross. That it's because of the blood that we already are one. That we already are a family, aren't we? That when we've been adopted by Father God, we become sons and daughters of God, but we become brothers and sisters in Christ, don't we? Amen? And the Bible says that we're already one in Christ, that we're actually betrothed to Christ. The church is betrothed, to Him. that's why Clint called us a beautiful bride, because really and truly, Jesus sees his church as his bride that we're betrothed to him, and we're one with him, and yet because we're one in him, we're members of one another. We belong to one another. This is what we've been learning, that we are God's redemptive plan on the earth. And so, of course, of course, if the church would love one another, serve one another, walk in submission to one another, right? Honor one another. Be a family like brothers and sisters. If we'd walk in oneness like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, And what did Jesus pray? Then the world would believe. Amen then the world would know. And this is what he longs. He doesn't want us to be a family with the doors closed. A family on mission is one that understands we're to love one another in such a way that it attracts people to him. We're to love people in such a way that the family keeps growing. Amen? We're supposed to disciple nations. All that means is invite more and more people to be God's family. Go after the lost kids and say, Father is inviting you home. But do you realize that when you are inviting someone to come to Jesus, you're inviting them to be your brother and sister. You're inviting them into the family. I mean, I'm not against evangelism where you go out and you share with somebody randomly, and you make them, you know, you pray the sinner's prayer, and you never see them again. I'm not against that. That did happen a couple times in the New Testament. You know, we trust that if God, you know, leads you to share Jesus on an airplane, you never see them again. You trust that the Father is gonna. Disciple them, because they're his kid. But the reality is, is that most of that kind of evangelism is like giving birth to a child and then leaving them at a door, on a doorstep. It's like abortion, isn't it? You can't, you can't have a kid and then just leave them to themselves, can you? And so evangelism, without inviting somebody into the community and discipling them and helping them, evangelism that thinks, oh, well, no, no, I no, mean, I just... It's not about you and me, it's about you having eternal life with God. No, you're missing the whole picture here. Of course it's about their relationship with God, but once they come into relationship with God, now they're in relationship with us. And so when we lead people to Jesus, if physically, geographically possible, we have to be there for them. And nowadays with technology, it doesn't matter where they are. You lead someone to Jesus and you can disciple them, praise God, and help them to get into a community and call them on the phone and Facebook them and Skype them and text them and everything. FaceTime. I mean, whatever. They got, they got all this kind of craziness nowadays. My point is that when people come into the family of God, they don't just come in relation with God, but with us, and we need to be a family on mission that continues to grow, uh, not just spiritually, but numerically. He wants his family to grow. So the Lord's been teaching me a lot about this oneness for a while now, probably at least a year. At least a year. I've been just really excited about that. I've been learning a lot about the Trinity. I'm sure the angels just started laughing right now. So you guys didn't think that was funny. I bet the angels were like, right, Dave. Yeah, like you know anything about the Trinity. I've been really thinking a lot about how God is three in one and there's this oneness. I probably just scratched the surface. And I've been studying this about the church. And I'm just marveling at how God is one in relation with himself, how the church is one. And yet, it's interesting because Jesus says that the Father and the Son are one. Right? Jesus said the Father and I are one. He says the church is one. We saw that last week and that we're one with him. And he says that when you're married, you're one. Those are the only three things that I've seen in the scriptures that are one. Isn't that interesting? I think that's interesting. See, I want to go there. Look at Genesis chapter one. So what do they have in common? You're like, oh, hey, what do they have in common? Oneness. I'm sure most of you figured that out already before I said it. But I want to see what God's original design is. I want to keep looking into this. If we're to be a family, if we're to walk in unity with one another, and it's supposed to look like God's, the way God relates to himself, if we need to walk in unity and walk in oneness, then what does that look like? I want to keep pressing into that. And I want to look at something today regarding this oneness, regarding this dynamic of how God is one, how the church is to be one, how marriage marriage is is a picture of oneness. And I'll be honest, I want to go after something that I think is absolutely wicked and destroying our nation. I want to go after something that is absolutely destroying family and unity in the church. I think that what I want to talk, what I'm going to address today, I think is fundamentally undermining our efforts now, on the other hand, we're going to look positively at like, God's original design. So it'll mostly be a positive thing, right? We're going to hold up the truth and say, this is what, how God intended things to be. And then, but by doing that, I think that what's going to happen is God wants to confront something that is literally destroying any of our attempts for unity in the church. In the church. It's like, yeah, we want it. Yay! But why doesn't it happen? Why is it that... Something, it's because something fundamentally is tearing away at things in our society. So look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, when God chooses to make human beings. And look at what he says about human beings. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth, right? This is God, he created the world, right? And this is day six, when he made human beings and of course he created human beings to rule over his, his world. The world that he just created for them, he created them to rule over that world, right? And it says right there, uh, that he says he says right there in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. And, and, and most of you know that he created us for relation with himself. Created us for relation with himself. And obviously here with this idea of dominion, he created us to work to partner with him, to be stewards of, the, of his world. But I want, to note, I want you to notice, I want to point out some things about this aspect of oneness. Notice when, how it starts. Then God said, then God said, right? And of course, he speaks everything into existence. But so then God said, God, right? God is one, amen? God is one. Then God said, God said. Let us make man in our image. Well, that's kind of weird. He's not talking about angels. (laughs) We're not made in the image of angels. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Well, that's kind of weird. Why? Why did he say that? Because he's himself, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's make man in our image. But who's saying it? God, one God, right? One God, but in three distinct persons, three distinct persons. That's something very interesting about God, right? Three distinct persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet one. And so you see right here. Then God said, "Let us," right? Then God said, "Let us," and notice what He says: "Let us make man. Let us make man." Now that word "man" in the Hebrew is Adam. Adam's name simply means. Man. It, it, just, it means mankind, humankind. But I want you to know that he, God says, let us make Adam. Right, so I'm going to use a lot of the Hebrew here for a second. Let us make Adam. Let us make man. Let us make Adam. What is that? That's singular, isn't it? Let us make Adam, singular. In our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion. Who? Them, that's it. Let us make Adam, let them have dominion. You guys seen a connection here? One God, our image, Adam, them have dominion. You seen a connection here? Why? God didn't create us. In His image, just like... First of all, we're not created in His image because it's like physical. You know what I'm saying? Like God doesn't have like five fingers and five toes or something like that. We're created in an image of God because we love like He loves. Right? We have will. We have intellect, etc. So we could talk about that. But we've created in His image because we're relational. Because we're created to be in relation with Him and relationship with each other. We're created to partner with one another in relationship to have dominion. Just like the Son... Do you remember the Son... Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the cross, and he says to the Father, what? Father, Father, not my will. Not my will. Your will, God. Your will be done. Remember that? What was he doing? Submitting his will to the will of the Father, the one who he's one with. Is there submission in the Trinity? Oh yeah. He's trusting the Father, aligning his will with the Father. That's oneness. They're distinct. But there's a oneness here, there's a partnership going on. And so this triune God creates human beings in His image by creating them in relationship. But notice, notice that they're they're first, they're Adam. Let us make Adam, mankind or humankind in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion. You notice he did? He doesn't say, and let the man, let the man rule, the man, let the, let the male. Let the male species have dominion. He doesn't, it didn't, it didn't say that. It didn't say that. God didn't say that. God didn't say, yo, what's up, masculine one? I bless you. You going to rule. No, he didn't say that. It says multiple times. Let them have dominion. Verse 27, so God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Yeah, there it is. He created him. Semicolon, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion. Who, who, who's blessed? Who's commissioned to multiply and to fill the earth, and to rule the earth, and to steward the earth that God created? Them. It takes male and female to be the image of God. Now, last time I checked, Male and female are kind of different, right? Yeah. Just a little bit? You know what I'm saying? Like, have you ever read that book, Ma- Men Are From Mars and Women are From Venus? I mean, it's like a secular book. It talks about the difference between men and women. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Let me tell you, men are not from Mars, and women are not from Venus, but we're very different. We're very different. Very, 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 very different. But, but, we were both created to rule, and both created to partner with God to extend His kingdom on earth. If you jump to chapter 2, look in chapter 2 verse 18. Chapter 1 is like this big overview of how God created the world, right? Six days and on the seventh day he rested. And so you see on day 6 he creates human beings and he simply makes this declaration, hey, let's make, let's make Adam, male and female, they're going to rule. And then he creates them and he speaks blessing over them. and He speaks the commission for them to have dominion. Okay, you see that all in chapter one. Then you go to chapter two, and like Adam's all by himself. It's like just one dude. And you're going, wait, whoa, hold on a sec. Is this like two different stories? What is this? Well, chapter two, think of chapter one as like the wide-angled lens. Chapter two is like the really focused, narrow-angled lens. And what you're doing is you're seeing the repeat of the story, but from a different angle, right? So chapter one, you're given the overview all the way from the seven days. But chapter two is just one day, day six. It's what's going on on day six. And so creation's not finished until day six is over, right? Creation's not finished until woman's created. And so we're getting a focused view on chapter two to see how it is that God made Adam male and female. Adam, male and female. We see it in chapter one. Let us make Adam male and female. Let them have dominion. We see it in chapter one, but we see how it happened in chapter two. So you're reading chapter two. And verse 18, he says, And the Lord God said, hey, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. What is he saying? Well, it's, not, uh, it's not good that Adam's just, just a, a dude. You know what I'm saying? It's not, it's, not, it's, it's not good. It's not good that he's alone. But he, he's also thinking of it like, It's not good that he's just singular. Singular. Like, it's not good. It's just it's like, he, all he got is himself. Just one kind of personality. You know what I'm saying? It's not just like, we think like in terms of... Uh, I mean, it is. He's, there's, no, there's no one to have a relationship with, right? Humankind, Adam, is not complete because he's alone. What does he need? A helper comparable to him. The word literally means a strength opposite him. One who would be a complement, a counterpart to him. One who would be his strength opposite him. What does that mean? That means someone who's very different. And yet complements well, that could cause conflict. You no, know, I think it would be easier. Could we just like just have us just, just do the Adam thing? No male, female. You know what I'm saying? No differences. No differences. Because unity is a lot easier when we're all the same. You know what I'm saying? Can we just skip the unity thing? Can we just go to like uniformity or u- conformity? Do you see how God doesn't want that? God wants unity where there's differences. Because it's the only way to have real relationship. It's the only way to have true, genuine unity when we're different. When there's two that are very strong, very different, and complement one another. Right? And so, God says, "Eh, it's not good for man to be alone. So, verse. uh, well, anyways, he goes and does the animal thing. Verse 21. We're going to skip that part. Verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. It's the first anesthetic and surgical procedure, right? That's why we believe in Jesus the healer, right? Because he's, he's good. There's no side effects here. Okay, anyway, we'll go into it later. Okay, so, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he, and he slept. And it says in verse 21, and he took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God take, had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So, the, so Adam was one, and in God's wisdom, he started with one entity. I mean, I'm telling you, like when we get to heaven, I think I'll know why he did that. I think there's got to be some profound scientific reasons, but he just started with one entity, and he said, but it's not good, it's that's not good, and he said, let's make them two. So he takes one, he takes Adam, right, before it was actually his name, he just meant man or mankind, he takes Adam, which is one, and he separates them. So that which was one, he makes two. And now they're very different, right? Male and female. In the Hebrew, it's ish and isha, male and female, just simply, and that they would be counterparts, strength to one another, Different, very different, but yet complement one another. That they were meant to fit together. And so he has one that has now been made two, and he brings this woman to the man. He says, "Then uh, uh, this is right. This is God's. You mean right? He he had the first dating service, matchmaker, uh, match made in heaven, all that. You know." First wedding, I'm telling you, no, God, no, I am, partly I am being, I am being serious in one way in the sense that this is, this is truth that God does bring people to us and that, but I, that God instituted marriage. This is God performing the first wedding ceremony. This is God bringing the woman to the man, presenting this wife to this husband and listen to what happens. So he brings, uh, he brings the woman, Isha, to the man, Ish. And it says, and Adam said, right, Adam, there's the proper name. And Adam said, this, like this person, this person, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or Isha, because she was taken out of man, Isha. This is bone of my bone. I mean, he's like tripping out, right? This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And look at verse 24. Verse 24 is an explanation of what and why marriage is. Based upon creation. Based upon creation. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh we're just told how God created the world and how he made humanity and it's the very basis or explanation for what marriage even is and so listen you've got 2 I'm sorry you've got one entity who now becomes two distinct people and God desires that those two distinct very different types of people would be what one That different people, a male and a female gender, would actually walk in oneness, in relationship, in such a way that what? They could be fruitful and multiply. And that's not just referring to the fun part of marriage. That's referring to parenting and discipling and all the responsibilities and the privileges thereof. Amen? He's talking about filling the earth and ruling the earth, extending God's kingdom through what? Parenting, discipleship, right? This has always been God's desire that the kingdom would be a family and that the kingdom would grow by being a family. Is how it works. This is not just biological. I mean, obviously now, we in the church. We do the same thing. We reach people for the Lord. We disciple them. But biologically, this is what he's talking about here. And so literally, this is his desire that these two distinct would be one. This is how the Trinity is, yes? Distinct, yet one. Walking in relationship, loving, serving, honoring one another. Listen to how this is described. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? They were one, were they not? They were one substance. They were the same bone. They were the same flesh. And now they're different or they're, they're still of the same bone of the same flesh but they're separate and distinct, right? You can't understand what it means to be one flesh if you don't read this whole thing in context. Because verse 24 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. It's describing marriage, right? A man shall leave his father and mother. There's a leaving one's previous family, not in the sense that you never see them or love them, but it's talking about you separate yourself from being under that covering, that family, And you join, it says, and a man joins to his wife. Whoa. A man joins to his wife. What does join mean? It literally means to stick. To be bound to that person. It's a covenant word. That through two people coming together and making covenant vows. Mutual promises to one another. In a binding agreement. They literally bind themselves together. They bind them themselves, they stick, they cling to one another, and they come and they just right through this and, 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 and yes, and the act of marriage, sex, is a manifestation of that. It is. But, it's, but, it, but this joining, this binding, comes out of comes out of the vows. It's a choice, yes? It's a decision that two people make. Choosing to vow to one another. Mutual promises of, of loyalty, of covenant loyalty. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Right? That's, what the, that's, that's covenant language that God says to us. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's what you're to say. That's what we say. Love stronger than death, right? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Till death do us part. This is the kind of thing that we vow to one another. In binding, in clinging to one another through these vows. And then sealing it through the act of marriage. A blood covenant. It says right here, and they shall become one flesh. Wow, what does that mean? One flesh. I mean, boy, even if it said like one spirit, that'd be pretty profound, right? But it didn't say that. It didn't say like spiritually or metaphorically. When you read it in the context, these two used to be one flesh, didn't they? Then they were separate and distinct people, but they were still of the same substance. And then when they got married, they were literally joined together by God and became one again? One flesh. Isn't isn't that physical? Isn't that biological? Yes? When else do we use words like flesh and bones? This is my flesh. This is my bone. Do we, do we talk like that? We don't really talk like that anymore, do we? Or do we? Man, this is my flesh and blood. This is my flesh and blood. Don't we talk like that still? Use that word. This is my flesh and blood. When do we talk like that? Kids. Brothers and sisters. Moms and dads. What kind of language is that? Family language. Hmm. was well, not that interesting? Think about that. And when do we usually use it in our culture? Man, this is my flesh and blood. When you're talking about how the fact that you can't dissolve this union, right? Think about it. We talk like that because it's what? Physical, biological, concrete, insoluble unchangeable, unbreakable. Yes? This is my flesh and my blood, right? Can you divorce your brother or sister? I know some of you wish you could, but, (laughs) but can you? No, we know it, don't we? Isn't there something, isn't there something they're always you, aren't they? Aren't you your brother or sister and aren't they you? Aren't you an extension of your mom and dad and aren't you in a sense a reflection of them so therefore you're a part of them and they're a part of you? Aren't your kids that of you? It's impossible, impossible for them not to be a part of you. Amen? There is something deeply biological, deeply physical that you cannot undermine. You want to kill them, and some people do. I mean, Cain and Abel, right? Can you divorce your kids? Mostly, a mother. I mean, even God says, "Can a mother forsake her child?" Even God says that in the Word of God. Mothers who have had a child grow in their very womb can't even imagine it, obviously, that how powerfully profound that is and how connected to that being you would be, right? To that son or that daughter, growing in your own womb, sharing. But even a a husband and a wife, they've come together and that child is them, right? A piece of them. Sometimes a woman might forsake their child. That's a very grievous thing. But generally speaking, a woman is just Bound to their child. Why? You ask any woman. Oh, you just grew in my womb. You know, they're a part of me. Right? Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. You can't divorce your kids. You can't divorce your brother or sister. And what is that? what is that about my brother or my sister that they could irritate the heck out of me? But you're never gonna forsake them. Now, some of us have, again, that there's sin. I don't mean to say that we haven't. But what I have found is that most people are way more loyal to their kids or to their siblings than they ever have been to their spouse. And that, listen, that's wickedness. That you would be loyal to your child, but not your spouse. You don't get it. Do You see what it just said in Genesis? That the two shall become one What? flesh, which means you are what now? You are family. You are bound. You belong to one another. That's powerful, isn't it? Do you realize what that means? I'm sure some thoughts are going through your head. Listen to what Malachi chapter 2 says. Just listen to this. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Oh, why is that, God? How come you're not listening to our prayers anymore? Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. with whom whom you have dealt treacherously. Ouch. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring, right? Discipleship, parenting. Therefore, t- listen to what he says. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord of for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed, to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. Do you know that if you are one flesh with your spouse, or those of you who are going to be married, if you are one flesh with your spouse, do you know what divorce is then? It's murder. It's a tearing of flesh. It is violence. It is destroying the work of God. That's kind of intense, huh? That's how God sees it. Remember when they asked Jesus about divorce? What did he say? Oh, I know it's kind of tough for you guys. Yeah, I know what it's like living with a bride. I got one myself, you know, the church. Have you ever seen the church? (laughs) I've been really thinking about getting a new one. Jeez. Did he say that? Matthew 19, listen to what Jesus said. The Pharisees, by the way, it was the Pharisees, religious people, trying to find loopholes in the Word of God and twist the Word of God. They said, hey, come on, you know, divorce, right, Jesus? And he answered them in Matthew 19. Have you not read? I love that. They had memorized the Scriptures. I love saying that to people. Haven't you ever read the Bible? <laughs> I just love that. That's what Jesus is saying. Haven't you guys ever read the Bible? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? He quotes Genesis chapter 2. And listen to what he comments. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man do what? separate. What did Jesus say? It's not just you who are coming together in a covenant of marriage. God is doing the joining. It's literally an act of creation. What was one became two, and what is two has now become one again. That is the work of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? It really is a very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful mystery that we are one flesh, that we belong to one another, my wife and I, and yet, do you know what the disciples said when Jesus said this? He go, they go Uh verse 10. If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You know what that? You know what that means? You know why that's recorded, right? Because they couldn't receive it either. They couldn't receive it either. They're like, "What? Shoot. Maybe we should just stay celibate." you know what I would say? Maybe you're right. Listen to what Jesus said. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. You know what God said in the Old Testament about adultery? That it defiles the land. Do You know what is destroying our nation? It's adultery. I find it interesting that the church is so up in arms about certain sexual sin out there, but they don't quote that verse. Generally speaking, we've kind of ignored that. That seems like a very pharisaical thing to do to me, for me. What does the Bible say? That if you're married, you're one flesh. You stay married. That divorce, it's adultery. Or divorce and remarriage is adultery. Do you know what that means, right? It means if you're going to get divorced, let me just be kind of crass here to make a point. It means if you're going to get divorced, then you stay unmarried. Which means, I just want to make sure you guys are flowing with me here, so just buckle your seatbelt. Which means you'll not have another person with you. You'll be alone and not have sex ever again. Do you know why most people get divorced? They already have an out, thought out. Most, 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 most. Most, statistically speaking, they're already thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. Most people actually have a particular person they have in mind. Do You know that? People rebound. And even if they don't have a particular person in mind, they have the vision of the perfect person that they want to have in their mind. Right? I'm telling you. Nobody wants to be alone. Nobody wants to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone, right? Nobody wants to be alone. And I highly doubt any of you want to be celibate for the rest of your life. (laughs) Hey, just calling it like it is, right? I highly doubt that. So you're telling me you're going to walk in purity for the rest of your life. And be completely devoted to Jesus, because you can't live with this person. So when you say things like, I can't take it anymore, I just can't do it, oh, so you're telling me that this person is just so bad, and it's all them, not you, of course, that, uh, that you're going to remain completely celibate, because, of course, anything other than that would be adultery and sin, right? So you're going to remain completely celibate and alone for the rest of your life because it must be the Lord's will then, right? Let me tell you, when you put it like that, I'll make people think twice, huh? If their heart's right before the Lord. Because anyone can make excuses and stuff. But if you just want to take Jesus at his word, he's pretty straightforward, isn't he? And he says the only reason... To break a covenant is when the other person has already broken the covenant through sexual morality. That's pretty intense. And here's what happens. Here's what happens when you realize that. And we'll probably talk about this more, how to do this. But here's what happens. When there's no plan B, when there's no out clause when you're bound to that person and they are your family, then what do you do? You fight for the relationship. Amen? You fight for the relationship. And what you learn is that something has to die. Something's keeping this relationship from being what it could be. Something's keeping us from being what we could be. And therefore, something has to change. And it's not leaving the relationship. It's not severing. And hopefully, you won't think to murder, because that would be sin too. Alright, I'm just being silly. But something has to die. And it is our selfishness. What What is destroying our nation? It is an adulterous spirit. And I don't mean that just in sexual connotations, selfish, all about me, 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 me. You ask people when they're going to get married, you ask them, hey, why are you marrying this person? I guarantee most of the time it will be all about self. They make me feel so wonderful. Well I'm glad that they do. I would hope that they do because if they don't, that would probably be a bad thing. So I don't mean to say that that's necessarily all bad, okay? But most people, when they're getting married, they get married for absolutely selfish reasons. Let's just be straight up about it. And when you get married, you become one so you could die to yourself and learn to love this person. Guess what? Guess what? Those of you who are single, you need to hear this. Why? Those of you who are single, especially if you're a Christ follower and you really want to follow the Lord. Why do you think the disciples freaked out when Jesus said no divorce? Because they know how tough it is. Hello. Right? So if you're single, I just want you to know you're going to marry this person, you're going to marry whoever, you know, God will bring to you and they will be a godly, wonderful person and they will irritate you. They will bother you. Why? Why God? Why? Why? Why did you make two peoples so different and why did you make them so strong? Why is it that, why didn't you just, come on God, can we go back to that pharisaical idea of like the foot and the doormat thing? I like that. I like the foot and the doormat thing. No, that's not how we created male and female to have dominion together, male and female to be strength opposite one another. That means how do two strong people who are very different from one another live together in unity? Well, I know, we'll we'll cause one person to be squished and nothing and do what I say. That's not unity. That's not unity. That's not love. That's not what God's talking about in the Word. So how do you do this? How do you do this? Let me tell you, if you're single, I want to tell you one thing is you better find someone who fears the Lord who really says, like, I want what God wants, I'm going to listen to God. Why? Because, man, if they don't fear God, they're not going to be open to correction, they're not going to grow, and they're not going to change. But I also want you to understand, if you're single, and and, and you choose, you choose to covenant to another person, this is not just about romance or your gratification or something like that. This is not just about, oh, I want to have kids, you know? which really means translated, I want to have babies, but I don't really want to raise them, you know? No, I'm just joking around. (laughs) Look, men are selfish, women are selfish. We're all selfish in different ways, but sometimes we romanticize babies, and we romanticize sex, and we romanticize all this stuff, and it's all about me, instead of all about being a team, team turner, becoming one, partnering together to have children to raise them for the Lord and work together guess what you're doing when you're becoming one flesh you're becoming a family you're having now you have a family business guess what we have finances we have to deal with we don't we don't just to go get to go on a, a lifelong honeymoon man that ended about the first week of our marriage right? we come back from the honeymoon and oh we got bills to pay we gotta work we gotta huh huh how do you have a relationship then and so here we go Michelle and I we're a family business we got finances We've got a ministry, we have a mission and a purpose and a job, we got some work to do. Man, we got to clean the house, we got to mow the lawn, we got to take care of the stuff that God has called us to take care of and do the ministry that God has called us to do. We're a team. This is way bigger than just, oh, we're friends, or we love each other, you know, whatever. No, this is like, are you ready? Are you ready for that? And I want you to understand, if you're married, you chose them. And don't tell me you didn't know what they were like. Don't tell me. Now, there are sometimes people lie, right? I'm being general. Some people lie. They're deceptive. You know, you get married and all of a sudden you find out they're just like, abusive uh, addict or something like that. Hey, there's boundaries that can be set with those types of uh, things, okay? So don't think I'm being, like, all religious. But listen, 90% of the time, you knew it. Don't lie to me. Boy, but Dave they have anger issues yeah 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 and you knew it you knew it but they're just not you know close and you knew it I'm telling you you chose them for their good and for their bad for their strengths and for their weaknesses everyone's strengths have weaknesses and everyone's weaknesses have strengths and you chose it and so therefore you have come together did you choose your children did you choose your brothers and sisters? See, I'm really getting into this arranged marriage thing. I really think this should work better. No, no, no. No, I'm joking. We've so romanticized marriage. We think arranged marriage, but listen to me. You didn't choose your children. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your kids. You didn't choose your brother or sister. And yet, why are you loyal to them? Is there a part of you? You choose to love your children. You choose to love your siblings. You choose. And when it's not working, well, some of us hide and just you know leave them. But most of us, we fight for it, don't we? We work for it because we're loyal to our flesh and blood. You may have chosen your spouse, and I don't. I'm not against the arranged marriage thing. It could work. At least it's a little bit less selfish. But listen. Let's say you chose, through covenant, to be one with this person. Let's say you're married right now. You chose them. And just like your children, just like your brother and sister, it is time to be loyal to them like you are loyal to your kids. You chose it. You're in covenant. It's insoluble. And obviously, when I talk about something as intense as this, and believe me, I know the society we live in, I know that many of you have been divorced. I know that many of you are remarried. And in no way, no way does Dave Turner judge you. Love does not keep a record of wrong. God is not judging you. I'm not judging you. And this church will not judge, right? The Bible says, do not judge your brother. It's very clear. So we don't judge our brother. But if we don't call sin, sin, we have a problem, don't we? If we call sin, sin, then what are the two responses to a sin exposed? Forgiveness and repentance. You can't change your past, but you can confess that it was sin, and you can repent. You can say, yeah, I was selfish. That was sin. That was wrong. Now, again, I don't know. I don't know why a marriage dissolved. I don't know if you did everything in your part. Again, that's one of the reasons we never judge, because we don't know. We just don't know. We don't know. So, no judgment. Only this, that today there is forgiveness. Where sin abounds grace all the more, the past is under the blood. But that means you are free from sin, and you are free from your past to walk in the way of righteousness and to repent and to walk in the way that God has for you. And so, for example, if you're remarried, praise God, let it be the restoration. But so many people get remarried, mo- again, just generally speaking, they got married for the wrong reason, they got divorced for the wrong reason, and then they get remarried for the wrong reason. And it was all selfishness. And so they blame and they make excuses that they never deal with the one thing that has always been the constant, them. And that's all that the Lord is inviting people into. Do you think that Jesus was teaching about divorce in Matthew 19 so that he could condemn people to hell or something? Or make their lives miserable? No. No, he loves. And he's inviting people to be his disciple and to love like he loves. So he's not condemning. The the stuff I just read from Matthew 19 came out of the lips of Jesus, the same one who died for our sins, of course. Of course. And here he is loving you if you've made those bad choices. And he's loving you and inviting you to walk in his way. And how will this change our world? Can you imagine if we would repent, if the church would repent of the consumeristic mentality, the selfish me, me, me mentality that is undermining all of our relationships, all of them, And we would begin in our marriages to love one another. Think about it. Isn't your husband, your wife, your brother and sister in Christ first? So what happens? Let me end with this. Paul in Romans chapter 14, let me just say this. He says, don't destroy your brother for the sake of food. He says, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of your food. Paul was talking about these issues people were having in the early church about eating food, eating meat, or not eating meat, right? And they they just didn't agree. They just didn't agree. And so some people were like, man, I don't don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian, and so I'm better than you. And so they were judging. And the other people were eating meat, and they were like, you're just not spiritual enough, man. You're bound in your legalism. And they were despising and judging. And Paul says... Who who are you to judge your brother? Who are you to show contempt to your brother, right? This is what we've been talking about. We're really family. We really belong to one another. And he says in Romans 14, so do not destroy the work of God or your food. What is he saying? Get over your preferences. Get over your different opinions. Get over your you. Literally, literally by just, you know, All that judging, accusing. How many husbands and wives, they accuse one another. Well, you did this and you did that. Do you realize you were accusing your brother and sister in Christ? You were speaking words of death and destroying the work of God. Use words like divorce in your marriage. I can't take this anymore. I just can't take it anymore. What can't you take anymore?